Good evening, church family. How are y'all? Well, my name is Matt Casey, and I've been a church member here for quite some time. My wife, Becca, and I are still members. Uh, Dawson and Kate are in the week care, and I'm just so excited to be here tonight. Um, Sherwood is home to me. Uh, when I was 12 years old, I gave my life to Christ in the old sanctuary, and uh, was baptized, and so just an outpouring of, of love and support from, from, from you, and I, I see people here that have poured my life, and it's just, it's good. It's good to be here, so. Um, <clears throat> grateful for Paul. He, uh, he's opened up his uh, pulpit for me to preach you a message, and I, I do thank him. I've been in a, a mentorship with him for nine uh, months now, and he has uh, poured into me, and we've uh, had conversations about uh, how to uh, lead well in a home and how to uh, you know, live life in the ministry and what it is to um, serve the Lord faithfully. Um, I'm thankful for those ministry opportunities that he's given me. I've learned something too. I've learned and he's taught me to teach what you know, reproduce who you are. That is to teach what you know, reproduce who you are. And it's the principle of learn and return. It's uh, faithful people serving other faithful people uh, down the line. Our former pastor, Michael Catt, uh, would probably thank, I'm pretty sure he would thank Ron Dunn for the things that he was poured into by Ron. He would also say that it was his humble and accurate opinion, which he highly respected, <laughs> to follow just uh, his gratitude and uh, but Ron Dunn would probably look at uh, someone like lifelong friend Manly Beasley or his mentor, Vance Havner, who uh, at, at, the, at the age of 12 began a ministry career that lasted 70 years and um, was faithful to the gospel. Well, in 1986, when Vance passed away, lifelong friend of his, Billy Graham, officiated his funeral. And so what you have going all the way through the history is links of a chain that continues to go all the way back till you get to Timothy and you get to Paul. And then it goes back even further till you get to who? You get to the disciples, his disciples, one of which was men like John, whom was loved by him. He, he, he said it this way. He introduced him in his gospel as this. The word that became flesh, it dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He also wrote in 1 John 4.19, we, we love him because he, he first loved us. So by the end of the first chapter of the gospel of, of uh, John, he has given uh, Jesus a title of 10 or more names to tell you just who he is. He was born of a virgin. He was the son of a carpenter from Nazareth whom they named Jesus. As we continue our series on the character of Christ, who is Jesus? What was he like? Who is he now? Specifically, 
what is his heart? I mean, we know what he did. We hear that. We know through Sunday school, we hear the stories, but what was he like? What was his heart like? Proverbs 4.23 says this, tells us that we are to guard our hearts above all else. If we openly show our emotions, we wear our hearts on our sleeves. If If we got a big heart, we're gracious. If we grieve, we have a heavy heart. If we change our plans like I do all the time, we have a change of heart. And if we, just, if we like the, the, the desire to do something is we didn't have the heart to do it. So our examination tonight is on the character of Christ, specifically his heart. And we'll understand it through the word of God and through the truth, which Jesus referred to that in John 17. For God so loved the world, he gave his begotten son who believeth in him shall not perish and have everlasting life. The most well-known Bible verse ever. It is searched for two million times a month, one million times over the second most popular Bible verse, which I don't know. I didn't look at that. (laughs) I just thought that was a lot. This verse tells us God loved the world and what he did. He gave his only son for us to believe in for eternal life. We know what Jesus did, but why? Why would he do that? Who is he? To answer that question, we must know the truth of his heart. So theologians make two lists when they describe who God is. One list contains... uh, only things true to God, his incommunicable attributes. The other contains traits that are true of God, but they can also become true of us, the communicable attributes, his love, his, his, his holiness, his mercy, his grace, goodness. And so when we think of God in the big picture, when we think of God in, in terms of his incommunicable traits, it's his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience. It's those things that make God, well, God. And it's right for us to think this way, but how can we know his heart only by his incommunicable traits that that we don't have, by seeing his power only? Well, think, think of it this way. An earthly ruler may possess great power over a nation but his actions, what he does with that power, that's what reveals his heart. Is that right? So he can have all this great power and he can rule over a nation, but you see his heart and how he does that. Colossians 1.15 says this, tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact likeness of the unseen God, a visible representation of the invisible. In Jesus, the infinite, incomprehensible, self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal, 
immutable, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, sovereign God of the universe became flesh and dwelt among us. So that we could see his glory. So that we could behold his majesty. So that we could see who he is. So that we could see his heart. In this message, we will consider the communicable attributes of Jesus, his moral attributes most natural to him, and that's his love and his goodness and his kindness. So what is his deepest heart, for, particularly for sinners and sufferers? Weary, faltering, frustrated, searching people. Who he is, specifically his heart. Our text comes out of the Gospel of Matthew. If you've got your Bibles or your screens, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew for tonight. The writer Matthew was a tax collector. Prior to Jesus' call to follow him, tax collectors were proficient in, um, well, collecting taxes. But also, in that time, uh, they were literate. Most people weren't literate back then. They were good at keeping records, and uh, they were they were kind of hated. Uh, over the, uh, other than John, Matthew was the only other gospel writer, part of the original 12, making him an eyewitness to the, the life and ministry of Jesus. Bible scholars believe that he was a humble and honest man. Nowhere in the four gospels do we find a single word that Matthew spoke. He did not write to tell about himself. Unlike Peter, who had a tendency of saying too much, and too often, Peter said this to Jesus, we left everything to follow you. What will we get out of it? Matthew 9, 9, Matthew reduced his whole conversion to one verse and says nothing about himself. So it says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. Luke's account of Matthew's conversion said he left everything behind and he got up and he began to follow him. Classic Jewish writer says this. He said, he said not a word for his soul was in speechless surprise of unexpected grace. Matthew personally experienced God's grace in the heart of Jesus by the forgiveness he received from him. Well, how significant was that forgiveness? It was shocking. Matthew was a publican. He was hated. He was the most despised person in, in, in Israel at that time. Money they collected was partly extorted for personal gain and partly uh, taxed for Roman, which made them not only thieves but traitors. Same Jewish writer also said, in that day, tax collectors were so despised that they were barred from attending the synagogue or having religious interactivity with people. John MacArthur writes, one of the most definitive, dramatic, insightful, comprehensive statements our Lord ever made comes at the end of Matthew 9.13. It gives us a full perspective on his ministry. It gives us the basic rationale of the incarnation. Jesus said, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Matthew following Jesus cost him a lucrative career but gained him a destiny. Who better to tell us 
about the heart of Jesus than Matthew himself. I like that. I think we start with Matthew, right? Then we might get to John, but then that would probably take too long. Our text comes from uh, the 11th chapter of Matthew. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentleman Lowly, wrote, My dad pointed out to me something that Charles Spurgeon pointed out to him. In the four Gospels account to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 89 chapters of biblical text, there is only one place where Jesus himself tells us his own heart. That's significant. Let's read Matthew 11, starting in verses 28, going through 30. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, Praise you for your word, Lord, that you tell us who you are, yet you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent to reveal them to children. That was what was pleasing to you. God, may your spirit be with us and may it move us to know you more. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. So here's a disclaimer. I'm not trying to ignore the holiness of God. I'm not trying to uh, downplay his uh, position on sin or, or reduce any, any way his righteousness or soften the harsh, harshness of his saying. Uh, my, my job here today is to tell you about his heart. And the more the understanding of just wrath we have against Christ and evil and sin both around us and through us, the better we understand his mercy and we know that God disciplines those he loves. I, mean, I do that in my son a lot. I love him, but we just, that's not what this message is about. This message is about speaking about the heart of Jesus. And we know his heart by what he tells us. We know his heart by how he shows us. And we know his heart by how it is revealed through believers. So first he tells us who he is. I am gentle and lowly in heart. And we learn much from the Gospels about Jesus' birth and his ministry and his, his miracles, his disciples, but only in one place do we hear him explicitly tell us in red letters uh, who he is by his own words. We're not forced to imply it through another piece of Scripture. He just tells us. And General Lowly Ortland also writes, in the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is. We are not told that he is austere and demanding in heart. We are not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. We are not even told that he is joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, he surprisingly, his surprisingly claim is that he is gentle and lowly at heart. So defining the heart, we think of the heart not speaking emotion, emotional only, not, not that I'm sad or that I'm happy, but the heart speaks to the center of who we are. It's not just an emotion. It is, it is the marrow, the most nourishing innermost part of something. Our heart defines and directs us. Our heart makes us the human be beings we are. 
It is our heart that, that drives all we do and who we are. So in verse 29, Jesus says, I am gentle. Well, the word gentle in Greek is pros. It's also translated as meek, often misunderstood for weak, someone who's spineless or, or soft or unassertive. The biblical meaning of meekness is not weakness, but exercising God's strength under his control. The principle by which Jesus lived on earth, he lived under the authority of his father. Therefore, he had his father's authority. He talked about that with the centurion later in Matthew. Meekness is power under submission, a channeled power controlled by another power for useful purpose. It also brings the meaning of bringing order out of chaos in the spirit. A Greek word used to describe a wild animal domesticated. In Latin, it means used to the hand. I love this. Used to the hand. I got used to the hand when I was younger. <laughs> Alluding to taming creatures wild by nature. Uh, so picture, picture a wild stallion, and you, and you try to saddle that stallion. He bucks. You try to put the bit and the reins around its neck, and he resists it. But when you break that stallion... He's under submission. He's under submission. He gets used to the hand while not taking away any of his power, not taking away any of his strength, but he gets used to the hand and now he is under control and he's useful to the master for a purpose. That's gentle. Not weak. We'll see that later. Jesus also said he was lowly. Now, lowly is an interesting definition in Greek. It's tapinos, meaning humble or poor in spirit. Not self-deprecating, but speaking of a person who recognizes their total dependence on God rather than themselves. To be lowly also describes someone to be near to the ground or stooped real low uh, and, and in a position that you can visually see. And so who, who, does, who does Jesus invite to come? The invitation is, is pretty specific, and it's directed to all who labor and are heavy burdened by sin, people spiritually bankrupt, people who are tired of religion and tired of trying to keep the law themselves. It's legalism. I love this quote by Thomas Goodwin that says this, the posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. He doesn't cringe at reaching out and touching sinners and sufferers for such embrace is what he loves to do. And so as we open this up, the idea of God looking down on you and being angry at you, I don't see that. I see that he loved the sinner and the sufferer. That was what his heart was. Jesus gives no reason not to come to him. He's accessible. No one in human history has ever been more approachable than him. There is nothing in him to keep us back. He says, come. 
I'm going to say this one twice. Jesus is more ready to receive you than you are to come to him. Jesus is more ready to receive you than you are to come to him. God speaks to us in the Old Testament. It's not just the New Testament. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who saves. He exults or rejoices over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love, making no mention of your past sins. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Zephaniah 3.17, 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. So we see who he is. He was a friend of sinners and sufferers. Secondly, he shows us that he is generally in the heart through his actions. That brings us to our second point this evening. We see Jesus claim with his words in Matthew 29. We see him prove with his actions. What he is is what he does, and Matthew gives us his heart in action. So let's get our Bibles out and go to Matthew 9 with me. I'm gonna, I like reading out the Bible. It reminds me of days when I didn't know where Matthew was. <laughs> go to Matthew 9, verse, verse 18, starting in verse 18. And we're going to read this. Uh, this, this comes right after, not shortly after Matthew was called. And so Matthew leaves the tax booth and he enters in and they go to dinner at his house and they have this big party and everything. And Jesus has to tell the Pharisees that uh, um, he came to, to heal the sick and he didn't come for the healthy. And, and now, now we're, we're entering into uh, Matthew 9, 18. And we'll read through 30 and then we'll go to 35 and 36. While he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did he, his disciples. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, for she was just saying to herself, if only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus turning and said to her, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once the woman has, was made well. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, leave, for the girl has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took, the, took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all the land. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes and saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. Verses 35 and 36 says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the, pe seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. 
The bleeding woman spent her whole life looking for physicians with no avail. Came to him, pressing her way through the crowds. Surrounded, the crowds were surrounded by Jesus saying, if I can only just touch his cloak, then I will get well. A display of incredible faith from a woman for 12 years had been afflicted and deemed unclean by the law. Now get this, to be unclean meant shunned by our people and excluded from both synagogues and temple worship for 12 years. Who does that remind you of? Matthew. Matthew was excluded, and Matthew's watching this firsthand, seeing that Jesus has, has received this lady who is unclean. I wonder what he was thinking. Matthew witnessed Jesus' heart to heal the sufferer and also to forgive the worst of sinners. We know to be uh, the synagogue official to be Jairus in desperation and sorrow over his daughter came and bowed before him. For a priest to come into contact with a deceased person made them also unclean and if they didn't go through ceremonial purification, then that meant they were out. I mean, back then they had a lot of rules and so they had to be careful but Jesus reached out and he touched what was untouchable for others. You had the blind man, witnessed two blind men following Jesus, crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. They were persistent in their pursuit. Jesus honored their faith. And their yes, Lord, was the confession that released the power. Arguably the most sought-after person in history, we learned this. He was interruptible. Matthew 9, 22-22, he touched what was untouchable and he moved towards sinners and sinners moved towards him. Over 90% of his miracles were done in service to others. And probably one of my favorite verses that I love, I've, you know, preaching, you get to put your favorite Bible verses in. Well, I put this one in there, but I think it's applicable. John 21, 25. There were many other things that Jesus did, which if they were all written down in detail, I do not suppose that the world itself could hold the books that would have to be written. Folks, he came not, not, not to love the righteous or the Pharisees, but to love the sinner. That was his heart. Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life, John 3, 14. For God did not send the Son into, into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through him, John 3, 17. As the shadow of the cross grew larger, the Bible says Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. To set the face is a fixedness, implying, it's a, it's, it was a Hebrew expression, an idiom, but it implies in the wake of danger that Jesus was fixed on going to Jerusalem, to the cross. 
Jesus gentle and meek. He had us determined as a soldier to complete a mission on dying at the cross. The heart of Jesus is on full display throughout his journey to Calvary. His gentleness and spirit displayed as he accepts the Father's dealing with him as good and therefore without resistance. A heart not occupied with self at all, but in the interest of others. In the upper room, Jesus moved away from public ministry to, his, to private ministry by pouring into those who had received him. He spoke intensely to his disciples as he prepared them for his departure. He warned them, hey, you will be hated. They will hate you because they hated me. He also promised them the Holy Spirit. He spoke these things so that in him that is faith in his life and word that they may have peace. We see his humility. He washed the feet of his disciples. Men who would deny him and one who would betray him. As Jesus heads to the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays to his Father on behalf of his disciples and future believers. He prays for us. During his arrest in the garden, Jesus cut the right ear off of the servant of the high priest. And Luke adds this, but Jesus touched the man's ear and he healed him. From the garden, Jesus brought before Pilate and his accusers, but he gave no defense. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. He kept quiet. John 19. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. And to give him slaps in the face. And so when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him. Crucify him. Jesus soon after would be led before his people where Pilate asked a question that every one of us in this room is going to be asked one day. Then what shall I do with this Jesus who you call Christ? They all said crucify him. They led him to the place called Calvary. There they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right and the other on his left. While on the cross, Jesus received one of those thieves. Seeing his mother Mary still honoring his mother and trust his mother to John. And Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In the valley of the shadow of the death, Jesus, he warned his disciples. He promised them the Holy Spirit. He prayed for his disciples. He prayed for us. 
He healed the ear of a servant that was there to arrest him. He received a thief next to him, and he interceded for the people responsible for killing him. As they were crucifying Jesus, he made the statement, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the tense of the verb indicates he said it repeatedly. It wasn't a one-time thing where he was on the cross. Um, As they beat him, he would say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As they slapped him and they spit on him and they and they mocked him, and they punched him in the face. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When they laid his back on that cross, and they drove those nails in his hands and in his feet, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Is it offensive? Yeah. It's offensive. An expression of his heart for sinners, not, re- not revengeful, but forgiving. Well, thirdly, he reveals to us who he is through believers. He was genuinely loaded because he tells us His actions prove it in his life and now in his death. And we now come to see the heart of Jesus in the life of his believers. I'm going to close uh, with um, a personal and a biblical account. It's the principle, again, of learn and return. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. And Jesus said, I did this as an example, a pattern, so that you should do as I have done for you. An example for us to follow by taking the position of a servant to others. An act of humility, not just for his devoted followers, but for even an enemy. Judas will have to betray Jesus' feet with clean feet. So a beautiful example in, history, uh, in Scripture of the character of Christ is seen through Mary Bethany, the, uh, Mary Bethany, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. We, we, when we see Mary in the Gospels, we see her at the feet of Jesus. In Luke 10, Mary is at Jesus' feet listening to his teaching. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet weeping prior to Jesus raising Lazarus in John eleven thirty two, Mary came to him with an alabaster jar of very costly perfume and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, John 12, Matthew 26, Mark 14. Mary offers to us a picture of lowliness. At the feet of Jesus... It's the place of discipleship in our learning. At his feet is the place of comfort in our sorrow. And at his feet is the place of devotion in our service. And Murray said, you are only at the master's feet when you are lowly and near the ground. And this last illustration is, is personal to me. Um, you find out a lot about a person, not when, the, when life is going good, but when Things are not so well. Michael used to say when, 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 the, when life squeezes you, you see what comes out of people. Um, we've heard what Jesus said during the last words of his, his life. Warren Wiersbe once said this. He said, last words can reveal a great deal about a person. 
On the day Karl Marx died, on, the, on his deathbed, his house, housekeeper came to him and said, Mr. Marx, give me your last words and I will write them down. He said, go on, get out. Last words are for fools who have not said enough. Frank Sinatra said this, I'm losing, I'm losing. King David on his deathbed told his son Solomon, take courage and be a man. Charles Spurgeon said this, Jesus died for me. He also said in his last sermon, if you wear the livery or uniform of Christ, you will find him so meek and so lowly of heart that you will find rest unto your souls. He is the most magnanimous of captains. The heaviest end of the cross lies even on his shoulders. Last words often summarize a life lived. Three weeks ago, I had a privilege of sharing a few moments with a dying man just six days before he, he passed. And my intention was just to drop this note in his doorstep, and um, I got to come in, and I got to talk to him. He was, uh, he, he was my youth pastor when I was 12, and he baptized me. He did my decision counseling. And so I want to read you a portion of that note that I wrote him. When I think of you, your life and legacy, I see a gentleman, lowly servant leader, a man who possessed a quiet strength, a defender of the weak, a loving shepherd, and a man who represents Christ well. And then in his program sheet, it says, David generally loved people and desired to help others grow. His wife, Kathy, heard multiple times confirming that David had a gift of identifying ways people could serve the Lord that they did not recognize in themselves. A devoted husband, father, Grandfather, David loved his family most of all, intentionally making him the priority in his life. David had a gentle spirit. He asked about me. He said he'd been praying for me. He said he was proud of me. I sat with the man in death's shadow. He was weak. He was frail, but he had an unusual strength. I don't agree with Karl Marx. I believe last words do matter. My last words, and my, last, my friend's last words to me was this, and it came in the form of a question. He says, Matt, what can I do for you? Ladies and gentlemen, that is a picture of a gentle and lowly heart. A life surrendered to Christ and a servant who had power under the control of his master a man who did more for me than I would have ever done for him or ever could have done for him. So as we consider this evening the character of Christ, who is he? He's gentle and lowly in heart. If we don't have a personal relationship with him, he says, come, come to me. If you are in a relationship with Christ, we have the privilege of knowing him and sharing him and sharing his, his story. Paul said, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Our verse of the month. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What is the gospel? History and his story didn't die on the cross. Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for sin. They laid him in a tomb. Three days later, he rose from the dead that we might have eternal life. What sin separated, Jesus offers eternal life a reconciled relationship to those who will come and repent of their sin 
and place faith in him. Who is he? Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. What is he like? Jesus is a friend of sinners who has given us no reason to not to come to him. Do you know him more? In the valley of the shadow of death, what would be your last words? What will others remember of you? I miss my friend David. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for giving us your only son. He was the way, the truth, and the life. We are grateful you chose one way so that no other way would be confusing to us. Father, may your hearing of the word draw hearts to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.